I'll just get up here before Elaine comes and uh, brings her reading. Welcome, my name is David. I'm the, the pastor of the church. thought that was interesting, not maybe interesting is not the word, but, but appropriate that Ruth would take us back to last week because we can just go from one week to the next. We can forget what was so clearly uh, the, the, the message of last week. And... Uh, Oh, still plugged in. <laughs> I, I know that this week, yeah, you might say that's okay for you. You're a pastor. Everybody wants to talk to you about Jesus. But that's not necessarily the case. This week, I can count four or five God opportunities. One of them is actually a story of someone else's. We wanted someone to come to Alpha, just speaking with a friend in church. And we wanted a Christian to come to Alpha. And so we said to this Christian who's sitting in here just now, we said to this Christian, come and why don't the two of you bring that person? So what happens in Alpha is you're not allowed to come if you're a Christian unless you bring someone. Because we don't Alpha, we don't want Alpha full of Christians. Because Christians just turn it into a Bible study and it's a game at tennis and we don't want that. And so you must come with a friend. And so we were working out that two people from this church were going to bring this one friend that they both um, are, are a good friend with. And then I get a text message. I wish I had the text with me because it would be great. I had the text message from this person. And they said, thanks for the invite to Alpha. I'm going to come, but I don't need to borrow that friend because right out of the blue, I can bring my own friend now to Alpha. And that's, I think that's a God divinely appointed thing that's happened. We might just say, coincidence. I don't think so. So let us not forget what we know God was saying to us last week. Can you bring my volume down just a wee touch? Um, Doc Kennedy's back. <laughs> we are praying for you. Think you were in it, Kenya. Great. And um, so thank you, Ruth, for that. And please continue to look for what, how God is using you. Um, Please be bold enough to just speak something that's appropriate at that time. Before Elaine comes to speak, I really wanted to go through a couple of slides to set this up. We're going through the book of Ezekiel. We're going to do Ezekiel in nine weeks. Today, I'm going to try and summarize from chapter four through to chapter 24. <laughs> right, thank you. I know there's lots of words up there, but stick with me. At Mount uh, Gerizim and Ebal, which is in the very center, it's in the heart of Israel. One's in the north, one mountain's in the north, one mountain's in the south. And right there in the heart of Israel, a covenant was made between God and his people. And it was signed there. Now, covenants are, are promises. And the covenant promise is, is two sides. Breaking your covenant carries sanctions just as living by those promises brings blessings. So in Deuteronomy 27, 28, the promises between God and God's people and God's people and, and, and God were made. And this is what God's people had agreed to. God says, do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Lord, we agree to that. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay their, their face by destruction. 
He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Lord, we agree to that. We sign in the dotted line. And if ever you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Amen, went God's people. Do you get it? In the heart of Israel, in the heart of the promised land, God gathered them and God says, I make these promises to you, but there are consequences. There are sanctions and there's blessings. There's blessings and there's curses. And we know that God's people fail to keep their covenant promise. And we've known for the last couple of weeks through uh, going through Ezekiel that judgment is coming. The false prophets were saying, Jerusalem will never fall because that is where God's presence is. And if, God's, if Jerusalem is destroyed, that means that the other gods of the lands are mightier than Yahweh. So Jerusalem will never fall, said the false prophets. Jeremiah said otherwise, and so does Ezekiel because they were God's prophets. And yet we need to remember this, even though they broke the sanctions and their curses were a consequence of that, yet God will not and has not forgotten his covenant promises. I'm putting this up here. I'm not going to say much to it. But here's my summary of chapters 4 to 24. This one, this chapter is about making a model of Jerusalem to lie on your side, Ezekiel is commanded, as bearing their sins and eat only spelt food. And then chapter 8 is all about Ezekiel's taking in a vision to Jerusalem, showing the idolatry of the elders and the women. And God will deal with them. Chapter 10, and here's to 15. Um, here we've got the glory. God's glory is leaving the temple by the chariots that we saw in Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1. And, and you see there's lots that are going on here. They're called to repent. They're called to come back to, um, to have a, a new heart and a new spirit. And Jerusalem in chapter 15 is called a useless vine. It's, uh, sh- Jerusalem is is likened to a promiscuous prostitute. God says, I will strip you, yet later I will remake the covenant because that is who I am, God says. And you go down in chapter 20, don't ask me for a word. In every generation, you've chosen idols and broken my laws. I will exile you. That's a consequence of a broken covenant. And yet later I will restore you because that is who I am, says the Lord. And then finally, uh, you've got lots here. List, chapter 22 is a very interesting list of Jerusalem's sins. God says, I'll scatter and furnish them, the sins of the leaders, the priests, and the wealthy. Um, and then you have in chapter 24, Babylon besieges Jerusalem, likened to a cooking pot. And Ezekiel's wife died, but he must not mourn, for the, the same will happen to Judah. He is to do a prophetic act and not mourning for his wife. And this is in regards to the temple and to Jerusalem, that they must not mourn either. And I'll leave it there. So that is kind of a 24 chapters done in about four minutes. And, um, and here we come to Ezekiel 4, which is a chapter of woe. It is a chapter of, of judgment. And it's a sign act judgment. It's street theater judgment. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel is commanded to bring God's message to his exiles. We know that he's been appointed from last week as a watchman and he's to warn them of the judgment that's to come. He's to cry out with them 
uh, to them concerning the wrath of God. And the first song or the second song we sang of God's holy war. I've never sang that in a song before. And, and Ezekiel comes and says, flee from this because we have got a holy God and he's coming to bring his judgment because we broke our promises. Repent. So Elaine, can you come and, and read chapter four of Ezekiel for us? And then we'll look at the chapter thereafter. Okay, you'll find this on page 832 in the Pew Bibles. So it's Ezekiel 4, the siege of Jerusalem symbolized. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face towards it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will, tell you, I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hin of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord, I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said, I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. He then said to me, son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Amen. <clears throat> Shall we pray together? Father, I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, 
that you will have mercy on us today. I pray that we would hear your voice and live. Lord, we lay behind the things that are a distraction to us. And we thank you that you're here by your presence. We enter into your presence. And all other distractions we know flee away just as the darkness flees from light. So may this be an important place for us, Lord, that we would hear your voice. We would interact with you as we remember Christ's sacrifice at Calvary, as we remember just your grace that has been freely poured out to us, would you have mercy on us as we explore this theme of judgment. In Christ's name, amen. Preaching about judgment is never a comfortable thing. It certainly wasn't for Ezekiel, and it isn't for me, that's for sure. However, take this we quote into consideration of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. Simply because it's unpalatable today without a shadow of a doubt. And we can throw judgment into that because we don't want to judge people and we don't want to talk about judgment. We only want to talk about grace and grace and grace. And yet, Ezekiel not only had to preach about judgment, he had to embody it in these things which commentators call sign acts. He was doing street theater just as if it was Deirdre or Drew out there doing something in the street to gather a crowd to get across a message. And he did it for these days, 390 and then 40 and most don't believe that it was the full 390 days, like 24 hours a day. But at a certain appointed time, he came out and the people gathered. And for a period of that day, he lay there and he ate in this way to get across God's word to his people who were in captivity in Babylon by the Kebar River. So these sign acts were from God, and I've got a few of them here. In fact, them up just now. There we are. We've got four sign acts that we're going to look at this morning. And these were from God, who at the same time is merciful and he is just. The God who doesn't forget his covenant promises. And so let's look at them. The first sign of judgment we read there in verses 1 and 2. You can have it before you, but we may not read them all. Verses 1 and 2 is the model of destruction. Take this tablet and inscribe on it. Draw Jerusalem on it and then start to erect a war scene. It's as if people... Are, um, um, there's these shops that you see about the place. I've never been into them, but people will get in and play war games. Yeah. Is that what they're called? War game shops, whatever. I think of them as geeky guys getting in and playing with toys. But you see, they're about... They're about the place. Ezekiel's doing a bit of this. He's playing with soldiers, as it were, like a wee kid in the sand. And yet it's a very prophetic sign act uh, that he has been given by, by God. And the message of that is as, as the beloved Jerusalem with God's presence is, the message is that God will judge. And we know that God is judging something and we know that that's the darkness in the human heart, sin. 
Jerusalem as a consequence of broken promises in the covenant will fall. And that's God's message. It doesn't matter what the false prophets are saying, what people say. It doesn't matter what, how theologians pontificate. It basically, it doesn't matter what the mood of the day is saying. God is going to do it. And that's what he's saying here. That's what Ezekiel is trying to get across in the sign act as he is, as you were, playing in the dirt with wee figures. Jerusalem will fall, and that is a model of destruction. The second sign of judgment is this thing called it's a pan of separation. And we read it here in verses 3 and verses 4. The important part to get across here is that Ezekiel is playing at this point the part of God. He plays God in this street theater. God who is the invisible aggressor behind the visible. The visible are the Babylonians coming from the north. Israel's enemies invariably came from the north. And, and so God comes from that direction. In the form of the Babylonians with his face set against, hard against Jerusalem, the seat of the religious, political, social life of Israel, of Judah. So although it is the Babylonians, behind the Babylonians, behind their great enemies, it is God. That's the second sign that he's getting across in this street theater. It isn't just how the cards have fallen. It isn't uh, by accident. It's by foreknowledge that God is doing this, that God is behind this separation, behind the aggressors. It's as if God is saying, behind all of this suffering, behind all this destruction, is the fact that you have separated yourself from me and that breaks my heart and I cannot just ignore that. We made promises in the heart of this nation and this promised land that I brought you. I called you out to be my people and there was nothing great about you. You didn't deserve it. I was gracious to you and we made a pact and that pact was for blessing and for numerous descendants and to be the light of the world, but you are just like all the other nations. There is no difference whatsoever, and it's that tragedy that my people have separated themselves from me, and I cannot leave them in that place. And with this inevitable separation comes the judgment. He is the one who has always cared for them. He is the one who has always guided them and looked out for them. And now that they have walked away, who is going to do that? Destruction is inevitable. There is a lot going on in our world. Do we believe that the Lord is behind it? Do we actually believe that God is shaking the nations, judging the nations? Our nation is one of the most secular in the Western world, I, I think it is anyway. Is that a judgment against our nation? We don't live in a theophany, but still, a nation that is built in something and cherished something that had its links to the Judeo-Christian faith now no longer. 
a church that was passionate about the Word and being led by the Spirit has become religious with all its rules and regulations and has, has left the Lord that it loves is neither hot nor cold and is being spat out. Is God judging us for that? Is the hand of the Lord set against us because we have turned away from Him and wandered from the God we love? The third sign of judgment is the bed of iniquity in verses 4 to 8. And at this point, Ezekiel ceases to enact God and now he becomes the victim. Ezekiel becomes God's people, Israel. And, God, and Ezekiel was asked to lie for 390 days, bearing the sin of the house of Israel, and then to lie on the other side for a further 40 days, bearing the sins of the house of Judah. Who's the, the house of Israel? Lots of people have got lots of theories on this. I'm settling for this. The Israel here is the covenant people, all of Israel. The ten tribes of the north, the two tribes of the south, all of Israel. And what's significant about the, the 390 days? Well, most people believe that this represents the period from uh, 976. That's approximately the, the year where the Lord's uh, presence descended into Solomon's temple until the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. In 1 Kings 11, we read of how Solomon had something like 700 wives and 300 concubines. Go on yourself, my man. And, and, uh, and by that, he adopted the, the gods of his foreign wives. God clearly says in the covenant that was signed in, signed in the heart of Israel that is expanded in the later chapters of, of Leviticus, don't take foreign wives because they'll only turn your heart from worshipping the one and true God to their gods. And here is Solomon, who was wise in certain aspects, but certainly not this, who had 700 wives, poor women, 300 concubines, 300 other women. And because of that, from that moment onwards, we see abomination happening where you have temples, you have statues, uh, and 1 Kings uh, chapter 11 expands in that a, li a little Right at the beginning when God's presence comes down, there's that span of 390 years where worship in the central part of Israel was not true worship of the one and true and living God. And what's significant about the 40 days of Judah? I think this refers to the refugees in the, the, the camps. It, it, it refers to Ezekiel and all of those who have been taken out in those first waves of deportation from the Holy Land to Babylon. And it was lightly symbolic 40 days for a generation. Numbers 32 speaks of this. It suggests that in, in the Old Testament, a generation is 40 years. So Ezekiel's action here reveals that the exile, the exile would last long enough for one generation to die out, just as that was long enough for one generation to die out in the desert. As they came out of Egypt into the promised land and didn't step into it, but wandered for a generation to die. Similarly, I think that is what's going on here. And does Ezekiel bearing the sins signify some sort of substitution? I don't think so. 
I don't think this is a picture of substitution, unlike when Christ bore the sins for the judgment that was ours, because we see that punishment still happens. Jerusalem still falls. I think this is more of a picture of bearing the sins of, a need, of our need for a redeemer. We live this side of Christmas. We can look at the new covenant. We can look at what Jesus has done, the perfect spotless lamb who says to his father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing what you gave me to do. And we can hear the words of Christ in the cross when he says, it is finished. Ezekiel couldn't say that. He couldn't do that. And yet Jesus did say this and he could say this. As Isaiah said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the fourth sign of judgment is this diet of famine. And it's a horrible, it's meant to make it's meant to make a skin, a skin crawl. It's meant to be vile. It's meant to be putrid. And it was to those who were watching this street theater of Ezekiel. In other words, your destruction is going to be awful. You're going to eat awful things and feel awful things. It's going to be all-consuming. And so my question, therefore, is so what? So what? All this street theater, all this stuff about judgment, all this stuff about the covenant, what does that mean to us? Aren't we part of the new covenant? Isn't this all old hat? Aren't we different? Hasn't our heart been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, basically? Well, the return from exile in 538 through the ministry of Nehemiah and, and Ezra was significant. It was a significant act of repentance and restoration and a changed heart. Yet history shows us that God's people still are at it. Rebellion, leaving the God we love, enjoying our old lifestyle. We see it in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. And we see it, actually we may even read it in 1 Corinthians 11 where some and the church in Corinth were becoming ill because they were misusing the Lord's table. Their heart was not in the right place. These guys were disciples just like us. They responded to Jesus' call, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Just like we've responded to that call. And yet, is it not the case that nobody's perfect. Come on, let's be honest. We're all Jock Tamsin's bairns, aren't we? Give a little. Take a little. And nobody wants to be judged. In fact, most of us are terrified at the thought of being judged. And nobody wants to be judgmental either. We want, and rightly so, we want to be known as people who are compassionate and who have understanding. We want to show nothing more than grace and love to everybody. Right? And yet, if I can borrow a phrase, we're made in the image of our God. And if we are lopsided too much in grace and love and compassion and steer away with anything to do with resentment. We're relegating God's wrath and hell and judgment 
and consequences to the pages of history. That's Old Testament stuff. That doesn't happen now. That's a dangerous thing to, to be and to think. Our God, therefore, becomes lopsided. But Jesus isn't our BFF. He isn't our best friend forever. That is not the Jesus of the New Testament. He is not the Messiah. That's a caricature, a gross caricature. And yet, if we are lopsided in our view of mercy at the expense of judgment, we're not far away from that at all. And yet, Jesus urgently warned about judgment. And most notable in the parables, and they're there for you to see, the rich fool, the unforgiving servant, the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, the sheep and the goats. Jesus was not scared to talk about the judgment that would fall in those who did not respond and abide in him. The vine and the branches. Jesus repeatedly sets before us the drama of human life and the importance of our decision-making daily. Our choices matter and they build to a fundamental final destination. Thoughts beget deeds. Deeds beget habits. Habits beget character. And character begets destiny. This is a drama of life. What a testimony to the utter failure of all of those men and women born into Adam from the very beginning. But what a testimony that even though there has never been a people, even God's people throughout all time, who has been able to keep his covenant, there was one man, the last Adam, who came and perfectly and obediently fulfilled the covenant. Absolutely, completely in its fullness. It is finished. And we, because he takes the curse, we get into the blessing. Oh, what a saviour. He takes our curse. He gives the blessing. The wrath of God descends on Christ. As Paul says to his disciples in 1 Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the image of our God. Fully merciful, and yet he is the judge. Are we, like Ezekiel, acting out the message of God, living out the message of God, the living God within us? For if we were doing that, I truly think there would be more God opportunities, God appointments, even some sort of awakening, whether it be through Alpha or some other ministry in and around the church, if we would live out the message as Ezekiel lived out the message.